Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Joe McCall here with my good buddies Pace and Matt. Hope you guys are doing well. Welcome to the Creative Financing Lab podcast. I'm excited about this. This is our episode number three, guys. Number three. We are on a roll. We are all big fans of creative financing. It's how I quit my job way back in 2009. I was uh, doing wholesaling. You know, we're still doing wholesaling. Nothing wrong with that. I don't want to knock any other strategy, but um, I was struggling. I was sending a lot of direct mail like everybody else was to the same lists that everybody else was. And I was tired of throwing away leads, just throwing away lead after lead after lead after lead. I talked to a seller. They wanted too much for the house. I couldn't go see the house either because I was working 50, 60 hours a week on my job. And I had to figure out a way to negotiate deals over the phone. And I always felt like, man, I, I just never liked having to negotiate sellers and beat them down to 50, 60 cents on the dollar. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. Like, you know what I'm saying? In exchange for price, we give them a speed and convenience of selling their house quickly. But I thought, could there be something I could do with all of these leads I'm throwing away? Could it be that I could maybe give them the price that they need? Do that? Can I only do deals with desperate bottom of the barrel motivated sellers? Or can I do deals with sellers that maybe aren't super desperate and motivated? So I started doing lease options. And uh, at the time, I didn't want to own any more properties. So I just started flipping lease options. And Pace and Matt, I remember this so clearly. I was uh, kind of getting some mentoring by uh, from Wendy Patton. When do you all remember Wendy Patton back in the day? She had a student that was from he was a he was a United States citizen but he was from the country of India and he was in Chicago climbing the corporate ladder sick of climbing the corporate ladder went back to India and started was doing deals in Chicago from India and I talked I found the guy I called him up I talked to him I was like how are you doing this he's like it's not that hard it's just like I was there right I get people on the phone. I talk to them. I ask them if they want to do a lease option. They say, yeah, I send them a contract. I hire a local realtor, sells a house for me. So that was my whole entrance into the world of wholesaling lease options, just flipping lease options. So anyway, long introduction just to say, I love creative financing and uh, hope you guys do too. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast. Pace and Matt, how are you guys? Doing good. I love creative financing too. And I love you too, Joe. Well, so you know, I feel bad. Now. I, I was talking way too much. Pace got so bored, he left. No, I, you know, my wife is driving out to California for a doctor's appointment today. Oh, and so I've got the baby. So I've got a baby sitting right next to me on the floor watching some YouTube on my phone. So I had to step out for a second. Tell her hi for us. I will, man. I mean, it, that's the kind of the beautiful thing about what we do is that. So I'm in uh, Tampa a couple of weeks ago. Super interesting. So I'm in Tampa. I'm driving. Did I tell you guys the story yet about the Uber driver? No, we had the F-150 last time. Okay, cool. You're going to get another story now. All right, great. So, uh, Uber driver. Tampa's really hard to get Ubers. I don't know why, but it was just crazy. So I'm waiting around. Guy can't, somebody, I, my Uber driver pulls up, cancels. I see him. Like, I know it's him. He cancels it and goes and then, you know, meanders off. I'm like, okay, great. So I, I get another guy. And takes another 15 minutes to get him. And I'm like, man, thank you so much for coming out here. He's like, yeah, man, I, I never thought I'd ever pick somebody up in this area. And I go, why is that? And he goes, this is where all the rich people live. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, is that like a shopping mall, right? Because I was picking, I was running some errands in Tampa. And I go, oh, okay, cool. Yes. Yeah, I guess it is a pretty nice area. He says, yeah, man, you got to make like 
probably upwards of like $55,000, $65,000 a year to live in this area. And I'm like, wow, wow, perspective, right? Perspective. So I go, yeah, um, I, I mean, maybe more like $55,000 a month, you know, something like that. You could live in this area. And he's like, wait, what? Is that even possible? Do people make anywhere near that kind of money? And I'm sitting here going, man, have you ever like, do you have any buddies that are in real estate? Do you have anybody? And he goes, how would I even get in real estate? I know nothing. I have no resources. I have no money. I have none of this stuff. So I go, man, you got to go home and you got to go YouTube Max Maxwell and Brent Daniels and all these guys. Go learn about wholesaling, man. It costs no money to get into wholesale. It just requires some effort. So we get into this conversation and within 12 minutes, I realize like, hey, not that I'm God's gift to the earth at all, but somehow, some way this kid needed to hear that there's something better than spending all day Saturday and Sunday driving for Uber when the same amount of time and energy could be spent on wholesaling real estate, whether it's creatively or it's done, um, you know, with cash deals. And um, so I get into a conversation yesterday with Jerry about this and Jerry goes, you know, what's funny is so many people, this is Jerry Norton. So Jerry Norton and I are doing a YouTube video yesterday and he says, you know, so many people tell me that it's impossible to do a zero down, zero credit type of deal. And I go, man, let's do a YouTube video just about that. Let's like bring out the addresses and settlement statements and show people that it's truly possible to do a zero down, even have the seller pay for the closing costs, take over a mortgage type of structure. And so we go start going through this and I, I start getting amped. I go, dude, I, I don't even want to be here anymore. He goes, wait, what? And I go, yeah, I want to go back to my office. I want to start, I want to go back and do, I want to go do deals right now. Like I'm so excited about the fact that we're both talking about these deals and yeah. how fun this business is. Yeah. We are so lucky. We're like this small little teeny community inside of real estate that knows about wholesaling, creative financing, you know, all these things. I'm like, man, we are so blessed to know all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, there's people that have never even heard of wholesaling, never heard of a lease option, never heard of a sub two or seller finance or any of that kind of stuff. We're very, very blessed to be here. And I'm very blessed to be around you two guys that have been in the game for a long time. So it's going to be fun. This show is going to be a lot of a lot of fun. So anytime people have questions in the chat, guys, throw some questions in the chat. Let's give you guys some answers. This is going to be a lot of fun for us. Matt. Yo. I didn't come with a great story like you two came prepared with. <laughs> yeah. You got so, a lot of good stories, Matt. Let's, I, I don't have one right now. Maybe something will come to me. Let's go to the questions. Well, right. Matt, I have a question for you. Oh, sure. Go. If somebody tells you it's not possible to do a zero down deal with no credit, no credentials, like no W-2, none of that stuff, what would be your answer to that? <laughs> um, that's actually a good answer. A, a little small chuckle is a really yeah, good answer. Yeah, that's kind of it. I always think of the, you see that type of stuff in, in YouTube comments all the time. And, and I some, I'll, I'll venture out of my creative financing focus here and there and go into some broader subjects and broader investment type stuff. But, you know, you, you constantly get pushback of people are saying, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Fill in the blank as to whatever it is, right? And I, and I think of, uh, I think it's a, a Chinese proverb that says something to the extent of, those that say it can't be done should get out of the way of the people that are doing it. Yes. Right. I love that. <laughs> and I just always think, you know, on, on my channel, like, I, like I say this frequently, I'll say it even inside the videos. I said, if you're happy with where you are financially, don't listen to me. I don't want to interrupt that. Right. 
I'm not trying to change your mind or convince you of anything. I, I show different ways of doing things. And, and there's a whole world outside that that's uh, that anything is possible. And I really do mean anything financially. You know, when I was a real estate agent, I did the agent thing for about four years. So I'm very, very in tune when, when you get pushback, if you're interacting with a real estate agent in a transaction and you're trying to propose something creative, like I understand the resistance. Most people don't realize like if you're an investor, a wholesaler, and you're dealing with agents, and sometimes they can be the enemy and and sometimes they can get in the way. Well, frequently they get in the way, especially of purchases, but you have to understand their perspective. I mean, they go to work each and every day and are really kind of confined to this small itsy bitsy box. Find a client, get them pre-qualified, put them in your car, go show them houses, write a full price offer if you want to make money at this, right? And so that you have a, a monthly meet or a weekly meeting inside of your, your your mortgage company and your broker. And every Monday, they'll say, this is what the market's doing. Here's what the inventory is doing. And then you'll have someone, here's the interest rate. Here's the latest deal with title. And they'll close every single meeting with, and here's the latest culprit running the scam in your area that went to jail and got a bunch of real estate agents in trouble. So every week they would close that meeting with trying to scare people straight. You know what I mean? And I think to now to get back to your point, Pace, when people come to and say, you can't do that, it's just they've been told that they can't do that. So you have to have kind of have some sympathy, some empathy and some understanding. And so I just kind of stopped trying to convince people and started just sharing more and more and showing them real world stuff of what's possible. So I don't know if that was the answer, but it may no, be it, it is the answer. I've got a, an agent right now. She's texting me on a deal in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, of course, everybody, if somebody's sending you a deal right now and you're not begging for it, it seems to me that it's probably not a deal. Wouldn't you guys agree? <laughs> yes. So if somebody's sending me a deal, hey, Pacer, are you interested in this? It means that they've already, you know, sent it out to their list. They've already had 25 conversations with other people they think would pay high, more money. Because mm -hmm. I'm somewhat of a savvy investor, so I'm going to beat them up on my their assignment fee and all that kind of stuff. It's funny I, when you say that uh, if someone's sending you a deal and you're not begging for it. I, I have the same impression that, uh, or same feeling when someone says they need a bigger buyer's list. Oh yeah. I'm like, no, you just need to find a, a, a bigger sucker than you. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not finding good deals and that's why you feel you need a big buyer's list and the, to your point as well. And you, you just kind of have to sometimes face the fact that you don't have the deal that you think you got. Right. Right. So she, she creates her own comps, right? She says, Hey, this thing has an exit price of a million dollars and I'll sell it to you for five seventy five. And I'm thinking, man, you've got a $425,000 spread there. And let's assume it's a $200,000 renovation. That's a crazy good deal that anybody would want to buy. I know $200,000 is a big renovation for most fix and flippers, but I'm thinking, man, if there's that much real profit on this thing, you would have never, this would have never reached me, especially from an agent I've never spoken to before. Okay. So this agent seeks me out and is like desperately trying to find somebody by this deal. So in her journey to reach me, how many other people have told her no, right? So I, re I respond back to her and I said, hey, I would buy that deal if the seller would carry the paper while I renovated the home. And the agent goes, what does carry the paper mean? And I'm like, well, it means that essentially I'll pay the seller when I find my buyer after my renovation. And I'll even pay maybe even a little bit more money, um, but I could probably make that that deal work. And the, the agent says, oh, that's illegal. That was literally her response 45 minutes ago. And I'm like, man, you are. So it's a really good point that you bring that up, Maz, that they're educated incorrectly either by their broker or by you know, 
the real estate board or whatever it is to try and confine them to this really small space. And I think part of it is protecting their industry, right? The, even the MLS is a version of protecting their industry, right? Blocking people out, making it so the only way you can have access to the MLS is through a licensed real estate agent. Now, technology's changing that, but they get educated. They get told that this is illegal or this is wrong or just the mere fact that they were never educated on it means that I'm a real estate professional. I have a license. That means I know everything there is yes. to know about real estate. And if I didn't learn about this, then that is wrong. Yeah. There's a sense of entitlement almost that comes with, or a sense of self-importance that accompanies a license, right. even if they just got their license on their very first day, right? right. They're like, I am official. And little do they know that the, the real estate license exam does very little to prepare you to become a real estate agent, right. uh, let alone an investor. The brokers also say that because those small agents, those first day agents, those newer agents, I think it's two years or less in most states, they have to work under a broker. Yeah. So that broker wants to keep them in this little box because it's their <laughs> license that's on the line, right? They don't want them going yeah. out and messing things up. Pace, did you just call Matt Nas? There, no. There's only one Nas. Do you know? Do you know? Oh, who did Nas I, is? I don't know, Matt. Did I call you Nas? I didn't. I didn't hear that. Maybe it's just me. Nas is a real cool dude, but Matt does not look like Nas. <laughs> yeah, I know. I didn't call him Nas. No. Okay. The, uh, so the on the agent side, so Jamil and I travel around the country. We just did a pop up in LA, right? So we always do the same little survey in these pop ups. You get 150 to 200 people at these little pop ups, and um, Jamil will say, "Who in here is a licensed real estate agent?" And keep your hand raised. So like 70 percent of people raise their hands, right? So they got 60, 70 people with their hands raised. It's kind of cool to see. And then he says, "Okay." Who in there learned how to comp properties in real estate school or from your broker? And everybody puts their hand down. And it's like the only thing, like the main thing that you really need to know as a real estate agent is how to structure a deal, how to value a property, et cetera. And it's one of the, you know, multiple things they don't actually teach you in school. So, you know, it would be great. You know, it's funny is our real estate contract. So this is what I did with that, that lady about 45 minutes ago. She says, that's illegal. So I go to the real estate contract. I take a screenshot of the section where it says seller carryback yeah. on our actual real estate contract. And she yeah. goes, oh, wow, I've never seen that. Which contract is that? I'm like, this is the contract that you use every time you list a property. Yeah, how about the HUD statement that shows the same thing? Holy moly. Yeah. So it's just, it's such an interesting thing. So, you know, uh, to bring this to light for the, you know, 150 plus people that are watching right now. Yeah. Guys, this is not new. Creative finance is not new. I can tell you right now that the guys who have been in this industry teaching creative finance, you know, guys even 20, 30 years before Matt and Joe were teaching it, they've been teaching these principles for a very long time. Now, there's some strategies on sales and there's some extra strategies on, hey, let me wholesale a lease option, you know, which wasn't done 40, 50 years ago. You know, there's some extra tactics and stuff like that. But creative finance as a whole has been around a very, very long time. The problem is a lot of the guys and gals who have known it, Wendy Patton being one of those specifically, I've spoken to Wendy Patton and my only advice to her was, Wendy, you have one of the only books on subject two available right now that anybody would actually read, but your social media is so minimal that nobody nowadays knows who you are. You need to get your social media presence back up. And so that's essentially what this show is. The show is to highlight what creative finance is, to normalize the conversation around it, get you guys educated so you understand this is not a new strategy. This is something that's been a around a long time. It's just that 
that it's been taught in webinars and in in-person events primarily, but now we're going to be broadcasting it across the world and making it easy, easy to understand and easily accessible so that everybody understands. And Robert Allen, I just met Robert Allen. Guess who's going to write my, I'm writing a book right now called 25 Exit Strategies Your Mommy Didn't Tell You About. Hmm. And Robert Allen is writing my forward in that oh, book. Good for you, man. That's awesome. Super cool. So, you know, uh, Robert Allen, do you guys hear that story about him uh, in the LA Times? Yeah, but tell it again. This is good. Matt, this is such a great story. So Robert Allen comes out with a book, No Money Down, right? Or uh, Nothing Down is what the name of the book is. Nothing Down. And he gets an LA Times reporter calling him out on it saying, there's no way it's possible that you can do that. You're a scam artist. So Robert Allen says, I accept your challenge. I will buy a house with nothing down within 72 hours. You just tell me the, the name and the time. And LA Times goes, okay, fly to LA Times headquarters in LA. We're going to take you to an unknown disclo uh, undisclosed dis location. And we're going to drop you in the middle of the city with a reporter by your side. Okay, this is like 1987. So he goes into LA Times, they go to the LAX airport, they fly to San Francisco, they take him downtown San Francisco to, you know, a lot of people's understanding, that's probably one of the hardest places to buy real estate, okay? Even back Distressed then. real estate, especially nothing down. So he goes, they give him $100. What does he do with the $100? He goes and gets the first $10 out in dimes, right? So it gets 100 dimes. What does he do? He starts calling realtors listings out of the newspaper and just saying, hey, I'm a real estate investor in town. I'm looking to buy a property. I'll pay full price, but I want to give nothing down and have the seller pay the closing costs and we'll structure a deal that da, 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 whatever. So no, 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 no. Five hours later, he's like, well, we got to get to a hotel. So him and the reporter split a $34 hotel. So Robert uses $17 and the reporter uses 17 bucks. So Robert's basically left with, oh my gosh, like I I can't go that much longer. Like I'm down to like, you know, 60 bucks. I got to eat and have another night of whatever. 11 o'clock at night, he gets a call from an agent. The agent says, hey, I've got a house. The seller actually has two properties for you, willing to sell to you on, on seller finance, nothing down, and they will be closing costs. Come meet us tomorrow morning. I'll have the contracts all written out. So be before 24 hours is up, he signs two houses, nothing down, seller paying closing costs. Before the total 72 hours was up, he bought seven houses with nothing down, all the sellers paying the closing costs. So what happens is the LA Times runs this as a an ad, not an ad, I'm sorry, they run it as the front page of the LA Times. Robert Allen is legit blah, 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 blah. And his life has never been the same ever since that article. Absolutely blew him up. But what's funny is not a lot of people nowadays know who Robert Allen is. Now, the guys like us, us two, us three, we all know who, you know, Carlton Sheets, rest in peace. We all know, you know, a lot of these guys that have been around a very, very long time, but they're not social. They're not out on social media, which is the medium of the day. Yep. Right. It's Mar Robert Allen has some of the best books on planet Earth, but not a lot of people are reading books. They're on social media consuming smaller, short form content like YouTube or TikTok or whatever. So I'm with Robert Allen at this mastermind two weeks ago. And he says, yeah, honestly, he's like with the advent of social media, guys like me kind of fell off the planet Earth and I have to reinvent myself. And so he's hiring coaches and social media people to get him back on the map. But just, the, my point is these things and these principles have been taught for a very long time. 
by no means are any three of us inventing any of this stuff. It's our job to articulate our experiences and stories and to show you that it is absolutely possible and then to also broadcast it out into the social media realm so that you guys know it's possible for you too. If I had it, I have somewhere in my pile of books right here, Robert Allen's book, No Money Down. And it says in, in a big star on the book, completely updated for the 80s. And I'm telling you, you look through the book, right? And it's everything in there with the exception of classified ads. He talks about finding newspaper classified ads. Everything in there is still relevant and applicable for today. This isn't anything new. And you're going back to what you say. You'll hear this from attorneys and lawyers and realtors all the time. No, that's illegal, immoral, and fattening. And you can't do that. Why? Well, I just never heard of anybody doing it, right? I've heard this from lawyers. It's There's no way that a seller would sell you their house for 60, 70 cents on the dollar, right? That must be illegal. There's no way that a seller would let you rent to own their house or seller finance their house with nothing down, 0% interest. And, and, and there's just, you gotta, if you're new in this business, you just gotta learn to expect that, right? And don't freak out about it. Don't get upset. Just move on and find somebody else who is doing it, right? Find somebody else that is doing these deals. And yeah, because there's title companies that will help you with these deals. Um, and there's title companies that won't. So just find the guys that are already doing these deals in your market and partner with them. Say, hey, listen, if I bring you a deal, will you partner with me on it? And they will show you, you know, who who they're using for this stuff. You want me to you want me to give you guys a major hack? Yeah. So I own a transaction coordination company and I feel bad self-promoting. I do make money off of this. I promoted it the other day to my audience. Pace, come on. Oh, okay, cool. So I own a company called constantclose.com, which is awesome. We do tr uh, creative transactions in all 50 states. So we know all the title companies and the closing attorneys in all 50 states. So reach out to cl constantclose.com. Rochelle, my partner in that business, will help you out. Very, very simple process. It takes the you know headache of the paperwork and we will even talk to the seller for you. We'll get on the phone and walk through the paperwork. It's an insane insane proposition is that Rochelle, my partner, will get on the phone, walk through and say, yeah, this is what subject two is. And this is this. And here's this, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And then they'll, she'll go through the whole transaction for you guys. So Constant Close will also tell you, hey, this is the title company or the closing attorney that we use in this state. Let's use them because your title company is probably trash. But she'll say it a lot more professionally. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, we had a comment up there and I deleted it because I put up the banner of your... Um, yeah, it was actually really good. The Lewis. So Lewis asked a question. I have a great answer that brings Matt into this. Do any of you push sending the seller a letter of intent with multiple options so they can have it on paper or only when they request it? Now, I'm going to tell you guys, go watch a video of Matt Terrios on his YouTube channel. It's called 10 Ways to Find a Creative Finance Deal. Matt, I told you you were one of my heroes, man. I consume all your stuff. I, cons I, I consume everybody's stuff. Go watch this video. One of the ways that Matt talks about finding creative financing deals, he actually talks about, um, I, I think it's one of his students or somebody that used to work for Matt started this three prong approach to sending out offers, right? So they send out a cash offer, they send out, well, it's all on the same offer, but they just give the seller three options. And so it's essentially a letter of intent or an offer. And so go watch that video. It's really, really informative. I've actually shared that with multiple people like, hey, I don't have a video on this. Matt does go watch this video. So Lewis, go watch that video. Um, Matt, do you have any feedback on this question specifically? Yeah, so he's asking, do you give him the three option letter of intent? On, do you always give it to my guests or do you just when they request it? I don't give it. I don't give it to them right out of the gate. I'm a b firm believer in the Sandler method of sales, which I don't say my number first. I get the seller to give me their number and what where they want to be. But every once in a while, what I liked about that video is that your student 
doesn't send them an offer right out of the gate. He sends them an offer like months and months and months after they talk to him. And maybe it, it, the deal either fell apart or like they've lost contact with them or whatever. And so they send out these letters with an offer and they end up picking up a couple of deals a month out of those offers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's really, there's, I guess there's two schools of thought and Jeff Garner, who's a mutual friend of, of Joe's and mine. Do you know Jeff Pace? Yeah, I do. Okay. Cool, dude. And so he teaches our, our ground and pound school, our negotiating, and it's very much Sandler based. And he has a he'll he'll never leave anything on paper behind. And Mercedes and I, you know, for the last since we started working together, we would always leave something on paper behind. And so we we always left was the three option letter of intent. If we would go back and forth, we'd take five stabs at trying to get the right price. And then if that didn't work out, then we'd go ahead and we leave that three option letter of intent behind. And that gave us a a reason and a, and a not creepy or awkward reason to follow up the next day. So we just kind of used it as a continuation of the negotiation process. And so we they would always say hey, uh, we'd be able to call back and follow up on that the next day. But what we also noticed were the dynamic will change entirely in a conversation with a seller if there's something actually in writing. Otherwise, before that, we've discovered or what we've learned, our experience has always been, you know, it's all talk until something puts on paper and all of a sudden the whole thing will change. And all of a sudden the seller will be like, oh, this is real. So they still may say no, but at least we always felt like we got an elevated level of consideration. And so that's what we do. And then my student, who and I showed him how to do this. And so he used it frequently. But what he started to do was just he termed it the rejection letter. And so anyone that gave him a hard no it was in his follow-up sequence to send out those three option letters of intent. And in his first year, he sent out as 1,100 and something, which is a lot of letters. Uh, but it resulted in 55 extra deals that he wouldn't have gotten. And it was from the people that originally said no. That's pretty amazing. I mean, the, if you it's look at the cost of a letter, yeah. let's say the cost of a letter with everything included is under a buck, right? I mean, you might be 70 cents or something. So the cost of that was $700 to send that out. And he got 55 deals for $700. Yep. That's crazy. Yep. It, it's, it's, yeah. And so now all of a sudden that, uh, I said, oh, well, thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> we will put that in our feed or our follow-up process for sure. The other, the other side of that, just to, to touch on whether you leave something written or not, Jeff, his idea of not leaving it behind is because he knows he's going to relentlessly follow up anyway. So that would interfere with his follow-up. Mercedes and I weren't that ruthless with the follow-up and we weren't that relentless. So, but we frequently got calls two months, six months, eight months, a year later from people that still had that letter. And they were just like free deals that fell out of the sky when it happened. So I think whether you're going to leave it something written behind or not leave something written behind, just choose one and be consistent with it. So you get the consistent result. This is so huge. And it's just, just a numbers game. It, it kind of almost doesn't matter if you do it or not, as long as you're doing something, <laughs> if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But like, it's all in the follow-up. I'd say nine out of nine deals that I do come from follow-up. It's just, that's just the way it is. It feels like. And so I, for me, I do and preach, always send an offer to every single seller you talk to. And, you know, Jeff Garner wouldn't agree with that, but you know, if they, especially when almost all of them say no to my offer, right? Mm -hmm. Send them an offer anyway. And if it's just a cash offer, do that. If it's a um, lease purchase or owner financing or three options, it doesn't matter. Send something to them. Even if it's just a one page thing in the mail, and you can do this really easily with click to mail. There's a thing in there called email to mail, click to mail. Just create a letter, email it to click to mail, click to mail, prints it and sends it the 
same day in the physical mail to the seller, but send them a letter that says, hey, it was great talking to you today about your house. I know you don't want to sell it right now, but listen, if circumstances change, keep this letter for future reference. Give me a call. I'd love to talk to you, okay? But something in the physical mail, you know what I would suggest is take some of these letters, crumple it up, crumple up the yellow letter and have your kids write this up. Open it up, fold it, put it in an invitation envelope and send it to the seller. It will get opened. They will keep it. And it may put it in their junk drawer. Listen, this is a true story. Uh, Steve Cavanaugh, I don't know if you guys know him. He was telling me this one time. He talked to a seller. They said, no, I don't want to sell. He sent them a letter anyway. Hey, it was great talking to you. Here's an offer. And they attached a cover letter with a one-page offer behind it. Okay. Three, four years later, gets a call says, hey, are you still interested in the house at 123 Main Street? Like, I don't know, uh, maybe. And they said, well, our mom just passed away. She had a folder in her desk of house stuff. She kept your letter into this. This is three or four years later. And the letter said, hey, Mrs. Smith, it was great talking to you. If you don't want to sell your house now, that's fine. But maybe later, keep this for future reference. He told her to keep this letter for future reference. She did. The family is going through the estate and just saw his letter in the folder, called him up, bought the house. It needed a ton of work. He made a ton of money on it, right? So I'm just a big, big fan of sending the seller something after you talk to them, send them an offer, send them a letter, crumple it up even. This thing gets opened, it gets responded to, it gets called. Um, and then that's that's like the biggest thing you guys could do to stand above your competition. And uh, cause your competition's not doing that. Right, here's a good question on the screen. Lotto says, how do you make sure you're never forced to sell a property for a loss while lease optioning to a tenant? Um, I, I used to do a ton of lease options. I'd say 85% of my exit strategies for probably three or four years were lease options. Then I, you know, entered a different phase of my business where I don't like letting houses go. I like keeping all of my properties. So we have sold a lot of houses on lease options. Never once have I sold a lease option on a, at a loss. Yeah, how do you do that? I don't understand. I don't, the question is so confusing to me. I'm trying to like rack my brain. It's a great maybe, question. Maybe what it is is because there's been a lot of equity gain. I just talked to a friend the other day who sold his house on a lease option, but uh -huh. lost about 50 grand in equity because he priced it to... Uh, two years ago price, right? So maybe yeah, the question I, is- I was just telling my students yeah. last night, I said, my biggest regret in my lease option exits is that, so my formula is this, is let, let's say I buy a house subject to for like 70 grand. ARV is a hundred grand, right? Hypothetically. I take the $100,000 house at ARV, not what I bought it at, but what the ARV is. Even if it's not worth the ARV, even if it's the as-is value is below, it doesn't matter to me. I take the ARV and I say, okay, I'm selling it on a five-year lease option. I'm going to take that five years and multiply it by the average appreciation of my market. So let's say my average appreciation in, Mar in Phoenix is 5%. That means I'm going to sell it on a lease option at about 125 to 130 is my option price. Man, I am telling you over the last like, couple of years, especially the last 12 months, I've got people that now are executing lease options at 130. The houses are worth 160, 170, 190. And I thought I was being aggressive yeah. up front on my, my sales price. If I could go back into a time machine, I would have sold my lease options way higher and not even worried about it. I would have been way more aggressive. Hey, so that brings the question though. Well, maybe the tenant buyer wouldn't be all that incentivized to buy it then. Right. And so is that okay with you or you just- Yeah, I mean, we never had a problem getting rid of a lease option or I'm sorry, selling a lease option ever. It, it's actually overwhelming how many people you get when you post it on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or whatever. It's overwhelming, right? To the point where we had to use CallRail as an option. So like, do you have a deposit for an option fee? Press one. 
<laughs> okay, great. If they say no That's and smart. it goes to press two, it just hangs up on them. Not literally, but it basically was like, sorry, we're looking for a certain amount. We had to filter people out with so, so many people, right? So we never had a problem selling a lease option. They're usually sold within a week and I could have been a lot more aggressive. Now, could I? did I have a crystal ball to know we were going to go through COVID and this market sh shortage and all that kind of stuff? No, but still, I wish I was more aggressive on all those deals. What's your perspective, Matt? I'm curious on that. I just don't do a lot of it. I'll sell via seller financing because I like to, to lock in the uh, <clears throat> the gains that way with the interest rate and the cash flow. This is what's great about all three of us on the screen mm -hmm. is because I hate seller financing. Mm. <laughs> you mean it. selling on seller financing, right? Yeah, I, I, I buy on seller finance. I don't like selling on seller finance because I have no, I don't get the depreciation, right? I'm not the owner of the property anymore, but I see the value in it, right? A lot of our, our friends like Jory Alston and, um, you know, a lot of guys in Texas, people yeah. in Texas love seller financing because yeah. they can't do lease options as easily as we can. Um, so it's just kind of the default exit strategy, right? Or rentals and people that don't like having rentals, there's major upside of locking in your profit on a seller finance, like Matt is saying, because on a, on a rental, I go, okay, yeah, my cash flow is 300 bucks. Okay. Tenant doesn't pay one month. Tenant punches a hole in the wall. Well, my cash flow is no longer $300. Now I got all sorts of issues, right? So Matt is right. There's a major benefit for, but for me, my main goal every year is how do I get my tax burden to zero? And unfortunately, I have to use depreciation to get there. Or maybe Matt and I are going to move to Puerto Rico. <laughs> well, that's something <laughs> no. we should talk about. Well, there, there's another another side of that because that is actually my end goal as well, Pace, is like, how do I zero that out? And when you own 350 units, that's a, a lot of depreciation to the point where we were carrying losses for it every single year that we couldn't capture. Right. You could so, or could not? Could not. I right. mean, not not unless you made them. Uh, well, we keep that the real estate side of it you know, separate and we try to show the negative and, and pay no taxes and all that. But what would, what was happening was we were having this massive uh, carry, carrybacks, carrybacks. We're talking about seller financing. Our tax carry forwards thing was getting bigger to where we couldn't do it. So our CPA did an assessment of our portfolio and says, okay, what can we go ahead and how can we balance your portfolio between houses and notes to where it makes a zero statement for you at the end? So that's how I started doing more and more seller financing as we went into all of the difficult, the challenged managed properties and the stuff that I didn't want to necessarily, didn't necessarily see myself keeping as, you know, to build a nice trophy portfolio. So we started selling those via seller financing. So it, it increased our, our cash flow and it offset the deductions that we were getting on, on the depreciation side. As well, what I liked about it was those calls about the hole in the wall. It ain't my house anymore, yeah. right? Yeah, and would you so say, Matt, the savings? became much, much easier as well. Matt, would so, you say the savings you had in the pain in the butt factor outweighed the depreciation savings? Yes. That's interesting. We got, we, well, we got started in, in the Midwest, in, in Memphis and St. Louis and Cleveland, where kind of our three markets. And coming from California, where, you know, the, what, what $400,000, $500,000 gets you is not a very pretty property and nothing that you're going to want to keep long term and live in. But you could take that $500,000 and buy 10 cash flowing houses in the Midwest, right? All cash, no leverage. And, and so that's what was the initial appeal when we discovered Memphis specifically, you know, that was 11 years ago now. And so we started, we're able to raise private money and accumulate all of these properties really quickly. And, and on paper, it looked amazing. 
But at that price point, we found the same same dynamic in St. Louis. We found the same dynamic in Cleveland. Those properties didn't perform as well uh, in real life as they do on paper. And sometimes reducing that from that 15% cash on cash return and going for a property that paid 8%, the 8% performed better than the 15% of how it was laid out initially on the, on the math on the paper before we made the purchase. So we wanted to get rid of a lot of those. We were spending a lot of time. There's a lot of deferred maintenance that we were having to take care of with those types of properties. So we started selling those via seller financing and we were able to slowly upgrade our portfolio over time and create this nice balance of uh, cash flow from rentals and cash flow from notes. I think a lot of it depends on the market you're in. I think Phoenix is a completely different market than totally. Cleveland, Ohio or St. Yep. Louis, Missouri, right? So. Yep. A lot of it depends on where you where you're doing this. Yeah, agreed. You know, and there's some other tax strategies that I'm exploring right now. Like Toby Mathis from Anderson Business Advisors, pretty popular on YouTube. They are currently setting up a charity for me where I donate my properties to my charity. My charity then cash flows tax free. So then I take that cash that's ta like it's non-taxed cash flow. I then loan that money to my whole life insurance policy from my charity. My whole life insurance policy then funds my deal. And it's just this big circle of non-taxable events and compounding and compounding, compounding. And he's coming to my mentorship multiple times. He's coming back in in two weeks to actually show my charity that they just set up and show how we're donating property. So I've got, this is kind of a cool thing I'm doing right now. So I just bought a couple million dollar property. I'm donating that property to my charity, not depreciating it. I'm not getting depreciation. I'm donating the property to my charity. So I'm no longer the owner and I'm getting a dollar for dollar tax write-off for that house. So a $2 million tax write-off. And because of, this is kind of cool, because of the pandemic, the IRS is allowing me to go and carry my losses five years backwards on houses that I bought this year or last year. So because I'm donating a property that I haven't even paid off, I'm getting a $2 million write-off by donating it to a charity. The cool thing is the cash flow from that property inside the charity is also tax free unless I pull it out, right? So it's cool. Like these are things I didn't know a year ago. And so I'm paying all these tax professionals. I went to a tax mentorship last year, paid 25 grand to learn a lot of this stuff. And it doesn't seem like it's important when you're younger and you're only making a hundred grand a year. And then all of a sudden, you're making a lot more money than that. And you're saying, holy moly, I have a tax burden of half a million or 700,000 or $1.5 million or other people in our industry, three, four, $5 million tax burden. It becomes the only conversation you care about, right? And so Matt, I can't even imagine how many conversations you've had to have, you know, in terms of figuring out how do you balance that 350 doors? That's a lot of conversations, a lot of education that people just quite aren't there yet, but they need to understand it's in their pathway, right? Mm -hmm. It's funny that when, you, when you're starting a business, stuff like taxes and management are kind of boring conversations, right? It's always about how do I get more lead generation or how do I find more motivated sellers and how do I exit and find buyers? Like that's the conversation. Where's the private money? But once you, you start building, taxes becomes a, a subject that you start paying very close interest in or close attention to. Yeah. And in management, when you start adding staff, I mean, all of a sudden that becomes the thing to where like, okay, so how do I create a more efficient world? Because I've got these employees, but now I'm working harder in my business managing them than I was without them. Right. And all of a sudden those become what was normally a, I'd bypass all of those books in the business section. Like who wants to management? Ugh. You know what I'm saying? Like show me how to make more money. Right. right. But once you get, start rising and elevating and growing your business, those become important issues. Yeah, they really do. And so th the thing is, 
if you structure your business the right way, so there's things that I learned incorrectly. Like if you go on YouTube, people start, and forgive me anybody in the audience that I upset, but anybody that goes out and just starts an LLC and uses your personal name in your LLC, at some point you're going to change that whole entire structure, right? So although you don't think it really pertains to you right now, I, I'm telling you, as you grow your business and you accumulate more and more properties and you accumulate more wealth, you're going to get introduced to CPAs and tax advisors and you know financial planners that go, oh my gosh, we have to de delete your entire structure and restart over from scratch because you don't have a living trust and you don't have a this and you don't have a that and you set this up in your personal name. Oh my gosh. So these things are super important. Like Tanisha, here, here, here we go. Tanisha in my mentorship, she says, thank you, Pace, for teaching us the structure of a business. My eyes are open to the areas that are important. So what I did in my mentorship back in January is for five weeks straight, I brought in tax professionals and I, I showed my corporate structure like, okay, if my acquisition business acquires a cash deal and I assign that deal to my fix and flip industry or my fix and flip LLC, how does the money flow? How do I do this? Okay, what about my rental properties? How do I insure them? And I do that all on this big board, um, like a, a mind map, right? And so I did that over the course of about 12 hours and I've had like Toby Mathis and my CPA and some other people come into the mentorship just to show people how important it is to set up your corporate structure the right way from the very, very beginning. It costs a couple extra thousand bucks, but it will save you millions of dollars down the road. And so just set it up the right way. I, I imagine if I ask the question, how many people feel like they have the proper corporate structure in the, in the side chat, the majority of people would say, hell no, or I have no clue, or I, I learned on YouTube to how, to how to start an LLC in my personal name. Guys, that's all the incorrect way to do it. These things are really important when you're first starting your business. They really, really are. And unfortunately, I've had to learn the hard way by people telling me, oh yeah, we need to get rid of that LLC and we need to get rid of that and we need to consolidate these three things and da, 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 da. True that. Even, yeah, the other thing that you don't pay much attention to is, is the entity and your accounting, your bookkeeping. If you try to do that in the rears, that becomes a big giant issue as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So, we, sorry guys, we deviated a little bit, but these things are really important. And also, I reached out to Toby Mathis from Anderson Business Advisors, see if he would want to come on our show and talk about land trusts. And he said, oh my gosh, I would love to. So he, he'll come on the show, nice. spend some time with us. And buying stuff in a land trust, you know, in Arizona, it's an interesting thing, Matt. Um, you were talking about land trusts on your YouTube channel, which is why I'm pointing this to you. In Arizona, if I buy in a land trust, I cannot get a title policy or a title will not close or allow me to close that transaction without naming the beneficiary of that land trust. So in a lot of ways, a land trust is defeating here in Arizona. So what I do is I have a, tr a living trust that hold, uh, owns my holding company. My holding company owns my entity holder, whether it's an LLC for Airbnb or an LLC for rentals or an LLC for seller finance, whatever. And essentially, my entire corporate structure is protected and held by a living trust that doesn't name who I am and nobody can see anything, right? So I kind of get around the anonymity that way. From a land trust perspective, it'll be really fun to listen to Toby Mathis, who they operate in all 50 states and say, here's how I suggest you buy a subject too. And here's how I suggest you buy this and that and structure this, that, and the other. Would you guys want to have him on the show? Yeah. Right. Always. You guys, Matt, you're actually like right in his backyard. Have you guys hung out or do you guys know each other? No, I know the name, but, um, and I know ma many of my students use the, the Anderson organization for their stuff and they tell me all about it, but I've never had a personal experience with them though. Um, I'm going to be coming up there. I told Toby that we should go to Nobu and Caesar's Palace. And maybe what we'll do is we'll have Matt Terrio come join us now that I know you're in Vegas. 
Yeah, I hate that place. Oh, you're not a Nobu fan? <laughs> no, being sarcastic. Oh, okay. yeah. I'm like, what? I'll go just to go. If we want to talk business, that's better. Yes, please. So a couple of people are asking, Pace, do you teach the corporate business structure? I don't teach corporate structure. What I do is I teach you what I do myself personally. And I tell you, hey, I'm not an advisor, but this is my. these are all my LLCs. These are where I hold all my properties. If I get paid here, this is where it goes. If I decide I'm going to lend to one of my entities, this is where the money goes. And this is how it all flows. And then here's how I file my taxes. And this is da, 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 da. Most people love it because then it gives them a roadmap of, wow, okay, I now know how as I grow my businesses, how that all should look. And they kind of have the, what, do you, what would you say, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is fully visible to them. So they know how to travel that, that rainbow mm. bridge. Ooh. Nikki says, I wonder if these guys have had something happen to where them where all these trusts and hiding assets were needed. Yes, I, I have. I actually just recently had something. So I had a tenant, wasn't paying. Tenant, we go to evict them and the tenant then says, oh my gosh, there's mold in the house and I'm going to sue you. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to sue you. So we get her out. We actually evicted her. We proved that she was using drugs in the house. We got her evicted, even with the eviction moratorium, we were able to get her out of the property. And then she went to sue me civilly. And she was saying, I don't know who the owner is. It doesn't show this. It doesn't show that. Meanwhile, if she knew I was like a YouTube guy and I was an Instagram guy and she knew who I was, it would cause problems for me in my business and also problems with me and my brand. She can't find me. She doesn't know who I am. She doesn't know where my personal house is. Everything has gone through a P.O. box that's not even at my own house. I get people like, hey, Pace, I want to send you something. I go, here's my P.O. box. My driver's license has my P.O. box on it everything is hidden. You don't know where I live, what I'm doing, what I own, what I don't own, et cetera. And more important, you don't see the big target on my back, right? So that girl going through a civil suit, this is what her attorney said to her. Her attorney said, we don't know if this person has any actual money. We don't see anything. I, we did an asset search and we don't even know who this person is, right? So the, she actually opens a lawsuit. They go through discovery and through discovery, my attorney and their attorney were having a conversation and their attorney says, does your client have any assets? We can't find anything. Wow. And my attorney says, my, my client owns nothing. Because that's the moral, right? Own nothing, control everything. And so my name's not on anything. I have no target on my back. So do you think a tenant is going to now sue me for mold or this, that, or the other when they don't see the upside of suing me? Yeah, that's important. That's huge. The answer is yes. These corporate structures do protect you. More importantly, these corporate structures let you sleep at night knowing that you don't, you're, you're going to have way less issues. And then two, the way these corporate structures are set up also allow you to pay way less in taxes if you structure these things properly. So yes, they are not just good ideas and fun theory. And yes, we have fun games and it's nice to be able to go to lunch with some of my friends and we talk about all each other's corporate structures. It's fun, but at the end of the day, it is really, really important to to have all this. And just For think sure. of all the, the stories you don't know about that you averted. Here's the thing too, if you've not been sued and this might scare some people, but it's just the way it is. If you've not been sued yet, you've not been in the business long enough and you've not done enough deals. Right. It's, That's a great point. It's a, I would it's say scary. it's been, it's probably been four or five years since I have not been in an active lawsuit or not us getting sued, but a lot of times we're selling a seller for non-performance or we're doing something, but there's always an email going back and forth with attorneys almost every week that I'm, I'm copied on. It's just part of the business. You want to make millions of dollars. You just got to recognize this is part of the business and it's actually kind of fun have a good uh, having a good relationship with an attorney and knowing what you let me, have on your team. 
Let me clarify something here too. And I'm going to have to jet because I've got a, a podcast. I think um, we all do at nine. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me just say this too, though. If you're new, don't let this scare you. Don't freak out and think, oh man, I no. got to get this all figured out. I got to get my trust, my LLCs, my entities, and I got to worry about lawsuits and oh my gosh. Don't let that stop you from getting started, right? This is something that you can, it takes, it takes time. None of us here are experts on this. We just find people who are. We find other people that have done this before. This is why hanging out with us on this show and other podcasts like this is like you get to learn what we're who you, we're going to. Who are our who is our team, right? Who's on our team? And you can go reach out and contact them as well, like Anderson Business Advisors, like Pace was just talking about. I've had them on my podcast as well. Great guys. So don't don't let this fear of this kind of stuff that we're talking about stop you from getting started, getting going. To that point. And this is the last thing I'll say, and I'll let Matt wrap wrap us up. But Lewis says, should we you focus on your business structure before becoming consistent with closing deals? Still looking for my first deal. Lewis, go get your first deal. Stop worrying about the corporate structure. You have you have zero risk of getting a lawsuit on your first 10, 20, 30 deals. Okay. Go get deals. Go make money because the money you make from those deals will allow you to pay for things along the way. Okay. Good. Yeah, I, I totally concur. But be careful who you ask that question of, because if you ask the attorney, they're going to say, absolutely not. Do not do one. Take one step until you get yourself protected. Right. Which to, to, I guess, to cover what we say here, that is probably the best advice. But I think where Pace's answer is uh, inspired from and mine as well is that I've been teaching for 11, 12 years and, I, and I've seen people come in, they get everything all set up and never do a thing. And now they're out the money. Right. So. And plus, from a financial aspect or perspective, you've got to make about thirty-five to forty thousand dollars a year from your investing efforts before it financially starts to pay you. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the thresh, the break-even threshold point. So if you, if you haven't done that, it's probably going to cost you more money than it would make you. Hey, Carlos, he says, "Hey guys, I have some deals that are willing to sell on creative financing. I need help, please, Carlos. Here's a couple of things I'll suggest." Every Saturday, I call my students sellers for them for about two hours and just show people how to talk to sellers, work through deals. Um, I also have an acquisition guy four hours a day calling my students sellers. So either A, go work with one of my students, right? I got a whole bunch of students in here. Probably 150 plus of the people watching right now are active students. Rob Robbins is one of my favorite students. We've been in my program for over a year. Carlos, reach out to my sub two students or reach out to um, myself. DM me on Instagram. I'll call your seller. I'll lock up the deal for you. We can JV. I'm I'm not just an educator. I'm a deal doer. So DM me or reach out to my students. Yeah. yeah. Highly recommend Pace, guys. And I highly recommend this guy, Matt. If, if, if I'm pointing this way, you all see me pointing at Matt. Yeah. Matt, these two guys, I'm just saying this not to like <laughs> blow smoke, but I love these guys. I think they're better educators than I am. And so if you've not seen Pace's stuff, or Matt's, go subscribe to their YouTube channels and get their, buy their stuff, buy everything they sell. I mean, it's re you're ridiculous and crazy not to. I got a jet. Appreciate you guys so much. I'll see you guys next week. Yep. Later, Bye -bye, guys. Everybody. See ya.